<laughs> we're in, uh, we're knee deep in a series here on boundaries. Specifically, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about boundaries in regards to our personal relationships. And what I, I hope that we've kind of pieced together, right, over these uh, couple of weeks is that in regards to our relationships, especially, you know, nobody ever asks about boundaries on good relationships. So especially in regards to kind of our crazy-making relationships, the dysfunctional ones that we spend so much of our time and energy on, boundaries in these relationships serve the same purposes as they do in other areas of our lives. And this is that boundaries are used by God, and we've studied this over the week. This is not some kind of self-help stuff or, or you know, psychobabble. This is what God uses, right, um, to bring order out of chaos. He did it in his creation. We looked at that in the physical world. He's done this, and he is still doing this in our relationship with God. We've looked at two principles, right, that I've actually graphed them over the last couple of weeks. I didn't pull out the whiteboard today. But those two principles, I've encouraged you to use them to relate to one another and to help you decide where boundaries and relationships to bring, chaos, or bring order out of chaos needs to exist. The first, if you remember, was kind of on that L-shaped grid. Um, the XY axis, one was responsibility and the other was access. Access versus responsibility. You see it in the scriptures from the Garden of Eden to the temple in Jerusalem, all the way to Jesus and his disciples. The premise is simple, that there should be a direct relationship to the amount of access you grant someone in your life to the level of responsibility they have demonstrated in the relationship with you. If you were here a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this one, right, you already understand this principle. You're well-practiced in it, right? I gave you a couple weeks ago, remember I took my bank, uh, my, my debit card out and I read you the numbers and gave you the pin code? I remember somebody in the front row was just like their mouth was agape that I would be doing that. And then I said, of course I'm not actually doing that. There's only one person in the whole world that has access to my debit card and my pin code. It's my wife. She's the highest level access in terms of finances in, in my life. Well, actually in terms of every area of my life, let me correct that before I get in trouble. But in re specifically in regarding to finances, why? Because she's demonstrated the highest level of accountability with them, right? Now, when I shared that story with you, nobody said, I can't believe how selfish John is with his money. I can't believe how unchristian and ungodly he is that he would possibly put a pin code on his bank account and not give, us every not give everybody here the information. Nobody thought about that, right? Because everybody understands that my bank account has limitations and that the... That, that the because it's limited, the capacity isn't just forever, for, for, you know, money doesn't just keep coming into it. Access needs to be limited. As we've seen, boundaries at their core are about stewardship. Budgets, right, are merely boundaries on our money. Calendars create boundaries on, on our heart, or excuse me, our time. But that same principle of properly set boundaries that govern our hearts, right, they have to govern our hearts and our relationships, our emotional and spiritual capacities because they're not unlimited, so like God in his relationships with us, boundaries are placed and moved in relationships by us. They are there for our good. They are there for the good of others and for the good of the relationship. Whereby access to our hearts and our emotional capacities, it equals the level of responsibility demonstrated over time by others. Makes a lot of sense. We get it up here. Second, we looked at it last week, another relational dynamic. I just discussed it with communion, right? It's true not of just how God relates to us, but who God actually is, his character, 
And since we're made in his image, right, we were made to reflect those two things. We were made to reflect truth and grace. But as we looked at last week, we're not very good at this. And oftentimes these dysfunctional relationships, these crazy-making relationships, they occur because we get out of, out of whack on one side of that equation or the other. Too much grace, right? Or we relate to others with only truth, only harshness or condemnation or disappointment. This, as we showed last week, it often results in us trying to control others or others trying to control us. They get in our yard. I didn't put my fence up today. They assume our responsibilities or we go over into their yard and we assume their responsibilities to try, try to make their lives work for them. But it never works as we heard or we saw in that story of the parent last week with the irresponsible kid. Nobody gets better. Everybody does worse. And the cure to this is simple. Good, godly boundaries and relationships. Where we're set free to control and assume responsibility for our own lives. This is to bear one another's burdens versus everyone should carry their own load topic from last week. We have a responsibility for ourselves. We have a responsibility for ourselves. We have a responsibility to others. We're responsible to carry our own daily responsibilities, including not just our own physical responsibilities, but even things like our, our feelings or our attitudes. We're responsible for those things. Other people aren't, and we have to stop trying to make other people responsible for them. But we are responsible to other people, not for them, but to them to carry their burdens. Last week, we, we talked about how, how we described them as boulders, right, that drop into people's lives, big unplanned events. Um, with Isaac and, and the baby, he has a meal train that's going way out into October, right? We have a responsibility to Isaac, and, and you all are doing a wonderful job with it. Okay, so that's where we've been. Now what? Well, I've been processing this stuff along with all of you. Um, I, I don't have any crazy relationships lest you think I'd be talking about you. But it occurs to me that both biblically and practically, right, as I looked at it, most of us know all of these things. We're like, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yes, I need boundaries. It occurs to me that there are two keys regarding boundaries that have to come into play once you really believe that God has ordained them and that you need them. The first is so basic, it almost seems silly to bring it up. But I would argue it is the number one reason our so-called boundaries, the ones that we think we have set are, and are in place, are so ineffective. I was trying to study this concept because, again, it just seems so simple to me, like this one concept that we're all screwing up with our boundaries. And, and I, I actually found it tended to play itself out. I grant you this is stereotypical, okay? But stereotypes exist for a reason, and they can often be funny. It tends to play itself out differently in men and women. For women, this first cause of ineffective boundaries can be seen, and gentlemen, you've probably discovered in this re your relationship with your significant other, other. For women, this can be seen in understanding what your spouse means when you ask her if everything is okay. You know, you sense a little distance in the relationship. Maybe she's being quiet, kind of pulling away a little bit. And, you know, as guys, we tend not to be Sigmund Freuds, right? But you kind of realize something. You know, you're not totally emotionally dead, so you realize, well, something's a little bit amiss. So you ask your wife the typical guy question. Is everything all right? And you are greeted with what every man of a certain age understands means anything but, it was, but what is actually being said. Your wife tells you that everything is 
How'd you all know that? <laughs> See, stereotypes exist for a reason. Honey, is everything all right? Yup, fine. When your wife tells you everything is fine, and I am speaking to you gentlemen on decades of experience now. On Friday, Joan and I celebrated our 33rd anniversary. Can you imagine somebody being with me for 33 years? When your wife tells you everything is fine, here's what it took me at least 20 of the 33 years to figure out. Everything is not fine. Now, it's not just me that's discovered. This is apparently you have, too. Lots of other people on the Internet have. And it's everywhere on the Internet. And here's what we know. If it's on the Internet, it has to be true, doesn't it? And so here's a, here's a couple ways of looking at this. Here is a, a pie chart someone put out about this fact. When a girl says, I'm fine, the orange reflects she means she's dying inside. The red represents her actually meaning that I'm going to kill you. And if you can see the blue, the blue means she's actually fine. That's the percentage of times that is communicated correctly. Gentlemen, here is the actual scale. When a girl says I'm fine, fine doesn't mean fine. The scale goes great, good, okay, not okay, I hate you, fine. And one last word of advice from a guy married 33 years. When you hear, I'm fine, I think you should take this man's advice, head to the florist immediately. <laughs> Which, well, I mean, it's fine, I guess. You know why, ladies? Because you know this, and it's true. Women might have a slight communication problem here. Men, now you know fine isn't fine. But ladies, this small communication flaw pales in comparison to your husband's. Quote, we only need one meme to sum this up. I can't be bad at communication if we never communicate at all. <laughs> the number one key, you can sit there and understand all this boundary stuff. You can say, I see that God uses them. I see that he uses them with me. I know that they, I, you know, in my mind, I've kind of set them. Communicating boundaries to, uh, to others is the number one key to boundaries. The relationship is crazy-making. It isn't working for you in its current state. Either the responsibility um, uh, access, access is out of whack or the grace and truth aspect is out of whack. And so you, out of whack. So you've got to get them back into balance, right? You know it. Others see it. And so what do we do about it? Well, I'm going to be honest. Do you want to know what most of us do about it when, we, when we're in dysfunctional relationships? We tend to gripe, complain, Gossip, tear down, fume, either internally but oftentimes to others. And everybody around becomes aware of the dysfunctional nature of the relationship. How many of you are aware of a dysfunctional relationship of a fr that a friend has, but the person they're in it with has no idea? Happens all the time. Because we're great at communicating about people. We're terrible at communicating to people. The people that are making us crazy tend to be the last people to know. I mean, sure, they find out. They eventually find out, but most of the time, it's too late. It happens at the wrong time, at the wrong place. It, it happens at the Thanksgiving table or on Christmas Eve or on summer vacation. When they step on your one last nerve, right? When they put the final straw on the camel's back and you just can't take it anymore. You can't hold your silence and... You lose your temper. You go from zero boundaries to 100 on boundaries. I'm out of here. I never want to see you again. Folks, this is not how God treats us, nor is it how we are to reflect him to others. 
Much of the relational harm, everybody listen to this one. Much of the relational harm that gets done in relationships is done not by the boundary violator, but by the violated. Because they never said anything until it was just too late. You see that? How long did it take God to inform Adam of the boundaries in the Garden of Eden? Does anyone know how long it took God to inform Adam of the boundaries? It was the first words he spoke to Adam. The first words. Genesis chapter 2, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. God was not reacting to what Adam had done. He wasn't raging with anger. He communicated proactively them directly to Adam. He didn't choose to deal with it later or stew over it or complain to the Holy Spirit over in the corner about how irresponsible Adam and Eve are. He didn't, he didn't get with Jesus and start, you know, talking about how these people are driving me nuts. And again, and again right, the boundary was life-giving to Adam. It wasn't punitive. Adam wasn't walking around terrified, wondering where he could go, what he could step on, what he could eat, just wondering, you know, I, I don't know where I stand with God. Maybe he's just going to explode at me. No, God created the boundary because it gave Adam great freedom. The boundary, if you think about it, the this is actually fascinating. The boundary, right, enabled the relationship between God and man to work. The boundary existed and was communicated long before there was even a trespass. Let me repeat that one again. The boundary was communicated long before there was even a trespass. It was proactive in nature, not reactive in nature. We screw boundaries up when we become reactive with them. Jesus, God in the flesh, right? God in the bod, taught the same principle. He actually taught it, I love this, because he taught it from both perspectives, from the point of view of the offended party and from the point of view of the perceived guilty party. Check this out. He, he, he said, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. If you've been around the church, it's a very familiar, familiar verse. But when Jesus spoke these words, they were, I would imagine, and still are when you understand them. In fact, I, I mean, if, if I really preach this hard, some of you would tell me to get out. It's a very controversial verse. In Israel, their entire religious system, their entire system, the way they related to God was through the sacrificial system. It was the access versus responsibility paradigm, right? You were granted access to God predicated on your responsibility in keeping all of the ceremonial and sacrificial laws. This was, and I can't explain this to you enough, this was of utmost, utmost priority. Their cultural calendar revolved around these sacrifices, and so did their day-to-day -day existence. And Jesus says, wait, there's something more important than that. You can't be right with me if you're not right with your brother. The horizontal relationships supersede the vertical relationship. You can't be right with God and wrong with others. You can't be right with God and wrong with others. And so if your brother has something against you, there's no qualifier here. 
It doesn't say if your brother has something against you, but you know, you didn't do anything wrong, so it's really their problem. Don't worry about it. You're good. It says if your brother has something against you, no qualifiers for any reason, you should go and what? Be preactive. Communicate to him. Drop your sacrifice. I can wait, God says. And you go and be reconciled. Be proactive and communicate. Now, this often results in us accepting the boundaries of others that they might place on us because when we go and hear why they're upset at, at us, right, we might, they might say, I need to create some boundaries in this relationship, right? And we have to be accepting about that. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. Or we might need to place boundaries on ourselves. We might have to realize, look, I can't relate to this person that way. They don't appreciate it. It doesn't work for them, right? We might have to do those things in order to restore the relationship. So you go, you say, you know, I know you're upset. I, I did something that made you upset. So, so I, I need to go. I need to, to hear your heart on this. I need to understand from you your perspective and your point of view about what I've done. And as we, we talked about last week, right, this m might mean as uh, the mother-in-law, if you were here last week for the story, if you're the mother-in-law that is, that is buying her son her, his underwear still and coming over and cleaning out the, his son's underwear drawer, this might mean as the mother-in-law, right, appreciating that this is not the way to relate to my daughter-in-law. I'm not going to take it personally. I understand her perspective. I, I respect this new boundary. I get it. She didn't have to come to me. I could tell. Heck, I even knew it bothered her. But since she never said anything, I kept doing it. That was your excuse, right? She never said anything, so I kept doing it. But the scriptures say, if you know, if you know, if you know your brother has something, you go to them. It's not okay to just go, well, she never said anything. Jesus would say, if you know, then you go. Be proactive. I'm going to show you this in the scriptures in a minute. You communicate the boundary issues as you see them. Can you control, now here's the interesting part. Can you control, if it's the, uh, the underwear scenario, can you control your daughter-in-law's response to you? You show up, you realize, I, I kind of feel like you're upset with me. She shares that. And you, you say, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize it, and I, I, I'm going to stop that. Can you control what her response is? No, of course you can't. You can't. And so every time I, I, I teach these verses, they always need to be counterbalanced by another huge truth Paul explained to the Romans. You go, you go, you go. You try and restore the relationship. You, you set up and accept proper boundaries in the relationship, remembering that every relationship, maybe daughter-in-law by daughter-in-law, child by child, the, the boundaries are going to be different in each of our relationships. I have four kids. I understand that the, the, the way I relate to each kid is going to be a little bit different based on the kid. I put certain boundaries on myself, how I relate to them. Some of them are more willing to hear words from me than others might be. You do everything you can to make it work, to make it functional, to make it peaceful. You were proactive and you went and communicated. But if they don't, if you can't make peace, here's what Paul says. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. The other party's not interested, if you've done everything, if you've gone as far as you can possibly go, then you let it go. You have done all you can do. If they won't forgive, if they won't accept, then when you go to bed at night, you know what you do? You pray for a blessing on them. You pray for their good. You pray that their hearts might be open to you again. 
And then you put your head on the pillow and you go to sleep in peace. You can't control them. We try to, right? That's where boundaries are needed because we try to control them, but you can't. Boundaries need to be proactive and communicated. Jesus, again, same topic. If your brother or sister sins, okay, so this time it's not somebody who has something against me, right? This time it's I have something against somebody. This time somebody's done something to me. This time they're at fault. Go and point out their fault, i.e., be proactive and communicate. How? Well, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if, if they won't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter might be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Again, be proactive, communicate again. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, I'll finish that in a minute. Some of you know this. Um, probably a lot of you don't. If you go to join um, Menham Hills Community Church, this is actually in the membership application. You have to read Matthew 18, and then you have to tell us, specifically the elders that interview every member, you have to tell the elders how you, elders, how would you, you would use Matthew 18 to settle disputes in the church. If you go and read most of the New Testament, most of the New Testament, if you boil it down, is the Apostle Paul writing to churches where there is disunity going on. That's what underlies a lot of what, what's written in the New Testament. And this is the way around that. This is how serious this issue is. We don't talk about or against or gossip regarding others. This is Jesus talking about two believers that are members of the same church. That's what's, what, um, that is what's behind bring it to the church, right? Like if you've got a dispute with your sister in Oklahoma, you're not going to bring it to Mendham. Let me tell you about my sister. The Bible said I should tell the church. That's not the concept of what's going on here. The concept, right, is that in this relational church, this is a first century church, likely a house church where everybody knew everybody and they were sharing everything together, that the person would understand that they must be wrong if everybody in the faith community sees it the same way. Again, it's proactive communication at the highest level. If they still, if they still refuse, interesting, okay? Remember that if they refuse to listen even to the church, you know what you're supposed to do? Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Which sounds terrible, right? Oh my gosh. You want me to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector? And tax collectors, if you're unfamiliar, they were the worst kind of sinners in Israel. They were traitors to their own people. They were oppressors of their, their brothers and sisters. It sounds so harsh until you remember who said this. Who said this? Jesus. And how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? How did he treat them? It was funny, right? Actually, I'll give you something even more funny. Who recorded this? Matthew. Anybody know what Matthew's day job was? Tax collector. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying what you don't do is go around and write people off. Sorry, I tried. I communicated. You kept violating the boundaries. You're dead to me. You're dead. That's it. I'm done. You don't just write people off. You don't just say, I'm never going to speak to you again. And again, please understand, I know there are relational dynamics where permanent goodbyes need to be put in place, especially when there's abuse issues. So I'm not talking about that here, okay? I'm talking about, uh, about a relationship that is unhealthy but is not abusive. What Jesus is saying here is you reduce their access 
down to be in line with their demonstrated level of responsibility. If they're pagans and tax collectors, you treat them that way. You love them, you invite them, invite them to your home even, but you're going to have a right expectation of who they are, what they do, how they act. I'm going to lower, right, my access because of their, their, their level of proven responsibility. Jesus, right, he went to the home of tax collectors. Now, Matthew wrote about this. Matthew clearly at this point has changed his ways. He's repented. He's walked away from his tax collector booth, and he's followed Jesus. And what happens? Jesus allows Matthew very high incremental access. But no, while Jesus loved sinners and tax collectors, he was their friend. He went to their homes. He ate with them. They were not part of the 72 that he sent out to preach the gospel, the kingdom of God, to other areas. They weren't part of the 12 disciples that he spent his life with every day for three years. Nor were they part of the final three that went away with him to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was arrested. Jesus is saying... The relationship needs to change. Your expectations of the person need to be realistic and in line with who they are and how they live and what they've demonstrated. You can't spend your whole life giving 10-level access to your life to somebody that repeatedly demonstrates level three responsibility. That said, you don't just write them off. It's not zero to 100. You change the relationship. But you do that after you have gone and communicated to them the boundary issue. There should, for followers of Jesus, no, nobody should ever be able to say about you, you know, I don't know what happened. We used to be friends, but now we won't even return my calls. If anybody could say that about you, you owe somebody a call. And of course, remember, this is while this is true of the church discipline process, Jesus is discussing that here. The Apostle Paul talks about it in a couple of his letters in the New Testament. It's also true of relationships. Boundaries, listen up, boundaries do not exist as punishments. Boundaries exist to create fertile soil for making the relationship better. When access is diminished in some relationships, it might just have to stay that way. That might be the way it is going forward. But in others, hopefully with the help of proactive communication and proper boundaries that are given in love and not punitively, relationships get restored. And when relationships get restored, when responsibility increases, access increases. Paul actually reminds the church in Corinth about this exact point. There had been a horrible situation in the church. Um, you can read about it in the first book to the Corinthians. Uh, I don't even want to say it because there's some young kids in the room. But it was a bad situation. And so, so the church discipline process had been initiated, right? But then apparently this, this person had changed. He had repented like Matthew, changed the way he thought and what he was doing. Here's what Paul wrote to the church. He said, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And so, is that possible? Of course. Can it be demanded? No. Can it be expected? Not necessarily. But it was boundaries which made the restoration possible. It was the boundary that made him come to his, his senses, right? It actually highlights, this concept highlights the second key about boundaries. The first is they need to be communicated correctly. But the second is, with any boundary, there needs to be consequences. 
John Townsend, one of the authors of that book that I've been quoting from, Boundaries, he actually has a great way of communicating boundaries. Well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I think this, I'm going to use this in the future. So if I say this to you, this is, think to yourself, uh-oh, he's communicating his boundary. He said, when, when these kind of things come about, what you should say to the person is, that's not going to work for me. That's not going to work for me. I like that because it makes it about me. It's not about you. You're free to do whatever you want to do. I can't control you. I'm not going to come over to your yard and try to change your behavior. But that's not, that's not going to work for me. Communicates the concept really well. When you get out of whack relationally, right? But it also works financially. It works with your time. It works with your calendar. It's a simple saying. That's not going to work for me. Mom, I love that you love picking your son's underwear out. I love that you love to, under, to, to organize his sock drawer. But mom, can I be honest? It just doesn't work for me. It, it, just, it, it just doesn't feel right for me. And then you lovingly explain why. But after communication, if boundaries keep getting violated, right, if truth or grace keeps getting trampled on, there has to be consequences or you will forever live in this kind of crazy cycle dynamic. Sometimes the consequences are simply the concept of reduced access or reduced expectation. I'm going to stop trying to get from you what you're, you're incapable of giving. We're not going to be spending as much time together as we used to. Sometimes you don't even need to communicate that, right? You just, it's a personal thing, like, I have to stop trying to get from them what they're incapable of giving. So I'm going to kind of internally change my expectations. I, I might put some my own boundaries about how often I'm going to reach out. I'm, maybe I'm not going to have, maybe I'm thinking internally, I'm not going to be sharing as much with you as I used to, or maybe even as much as I'd like to. I'm not cutting you off. I'm not hating you. I'm just being realistic relative to the, the level of responsibility with these things that you've demonstrated. I can't keep demanding of you and expecting of you things that you're incapable or unwilling to give, and so I'm going to change my access. I'm going to change my expectations related to you. Now, that sounds so easy, doesn't it? Just, oh, that well, it makes perfect sense, John. Right? But it's so much harder. I don't know if you try to, especially with people that you love and you care for. I mean, oftentimes, w when this is true, I'm just telling you, if you're going to do this, there will be times of hurt. Because you wanted that relationship to work out. You wanted it so badly. Especially with your kids. I wanted to save them so much. I... There's going to be a period sometimes of mourning. Yet there's, if the boundaries are right, because it's not working the other way, right? It's not working the other way. If the boundaries are right, the opportunity, the soil is, till, is tilled for the potential of restoration. Does it always work out that way? No. Sometimes boundaries equate to goodbyes, and goodbyes are painful. But listen, goodbyes... Separation doesn't have to be dreadful, and it certainly doesn't need to be sinful. In fact, it's, it's such a shame that oftentimes separations are so sinful. Lisa Turkhurst, in, in her book I've been recommending to you, Good Boundaries and Goodbyes, she points out the original phrase for goodbye in the late, in the late 1500s actually was, God be with you. And a phrase eventually, the contraction eventually became Goodbye. So often we speak it with the meaning of good riddance, goodbye, and you can hear the door slamming. 
But it doesn't have to be that way. Reframing the concept of boundaries, right, the consequences of reduced access and maybe even separation, reducing a goodbye to the power of prayer, releasing people and saying, God, be with you, right? I'm not going to gossip about you. I'm going to bless you can be very healing. You see these kinds of goodbyes played out in the scripture. You're familiar with them. You've read them, at least if you've studied any of the scriptures at all. Here's a famous one from Genesis chapter 13. It's about Abraham and his nephew Lot. This is before Abraham's name was changed from Abram. So Abram went up, to, uh, went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land couldn't support all of them while they stayed together because their possessions were so great they weren't able to stay together. And guess what happening? And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. There were limited resources. In this case, it was land to support the livestock. In our lives, it's, it's time or money or emotional energy. Right? Maybe there can only be so many people organizing the underwear drawer. And a fight arose, which is what tends to happen. But notice, Abraham still called Abram at this point. Abram doesn't gossip about it. He doesn't talk behind his ungrateful nephew's back. Actually, he doesn't even join the quarrel. He knows it's coming. He can feel the relational dynamic starting to get wonky between Lot and him. And so what does he do? He does what Jesus, who who was thousands of years from being born, he does what Jesus is telling you and I to do. He goes and is proactive. He goes and sets a boundary. Here's what, what the scriptures say. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we're close relatives. I like this. He even goes down to the, the value of family. Look, let's not let this happen. Let's not let this happen between us. I don't want, this relationship is getting going in a bad direction. I don't want this to be the way it's going to play out. You're too important to me. And so Abraham says, is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Interesting note here. Abraham, as the patriarch, was due to make the choice himself. Lot should have been happy with what he, what he was left. But that's not what happened here. So key to see, even in the quarreling, even in the potential dysfunction, Abraham does not let his heart turn cold or, or even angry or hard towards Lot. Even though separation was going to be needed, he still loved his nephew. He still wanted the best for him, even if it was a great personal cost. Just because a goodbye was going to be needed didn't mean he didn't care for or love Lot. In fact, it sets the stage for their future reconciliation. He didn't walk away mad. He didn't take his ball and go home. Lot, you bunch of, you, you and your idiot friends. So here's what, what the writer records. Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zor was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. If you know anything about the scriptures, you know that whenever you read somebody heads east, that's usually a problem. The two men parted company. Abraham, the scriptures say, Abraham as the good patriarch offered him and tried to guide his nephew in the right way. We are here in the promised land of Canaan. 
You can go to the left, that's Canaan. You can go to the right, that's Canaan. You choose. It's your choice. But Lot takes a look, and he, he decides, right, to walk away, to walk towards areas and peoples and communities that he shouldn't have. He knew better. It's like Adam and Eve knew better. But that looked better to him. If you know the story for, of Lot, it came at tragic cost for him and his family. And again, notice that Abraham knows that he's going in the wrong direction, but he doesn't go chasing after Lot, begging him to come back. Oh, no, 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 stay with me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I should have never said that. Oh, forgive me. No, no, you're going to screw your life up. In fact, come stay with me. Move in my basement. <laughs> he, Lot, uh, Lot knows what Abraham thinks, right? Most of the time in our relationships, you don't need to go over again what you think. Most of the time, they know what you think. He doesn't chase after him. He lets him walk away. As you see later in the story, Abraham doesn't carry bitterness or resentment about Lot's choice to walk away. Abraham could have, as the patriarch, said, said you're not just rejecting God, you're rejecting me, therefore I reject you. How dare you do this? This is not the way you were raised. He allows him to go in a different direction. Even though it's different than the one God had for him, the way he wanted him to go, he didn't take it personally. He didn't wish bad on Lot. In fact, if you go and read in the coming chapters, 14 and 15, you'll see Abraham is still caring and interceding for Lot and his family. There was a goodbye, there was a separation, but there was still love and there was still communication. Similar story in the New Testament. This one involves Paul and his missionary partner Barnabas. The church at Antioch had sent Paul and Barnabas and Barnabas had a cousin named John Mark. They had sent them out on previous missionary journeys, and they had, they had crushed it. Luke describes the three of them this way. He says, so we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are serious followers of Jesus. Can we all agree on that? Serious followers of Jesus. They've all risked their lives for Christ. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them and Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Barnabas is okay with, John, with what John Mark has done. Maybe he had been cutting him some slack because of the family relationships. You know, he understood, oh, you know, it's just John Mark. Sometimes he gets a little sketchy, right? But Paul, what is Paul doing? For Paul, this isn't personal, I would imagine, but this is dangerous business. He doesn't want to set Barnabas or himself up for failure or death. And so what does he do? Paul wants to move John Mark's access down to be in line with the level of demonstrated responsibility he had shown. Barnabas, Barnabas thinks John, John Mark deserves more grace. Perhaps he thinks Paul's erring too hard on the side of truth. What's the point? Here's the point. You have two good and godly men, right? Good and godly as they might be, they're still human beings, and they have feelings, and they had, pa they had passions about this. Listen to this. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left. They said goodbye. Two good and godly men. What had they done? They had each, in their own rights, at their own perspective, set a boundary. And for each of them, the boundary was quite reasonable. I, I don't know who was right or who was wrong. In fact, I don't know that there is a right or wrong. You see that? I don't know that there is a right or wrong. It just wasn't working for them. It wasn't working for them. 
what the other wanted to do. And so it wasn't going to be possible to go forward together. And so there's a separation. And apparently it was a painful one. Maybe even in, in the emotion of the moment, it was a personal one. This can happen even between good and godly people. And yet, as Turkhurst points out in her book, there is no evidence that either of them ever set out to personally attack or destroy the reputation of the other. There was no backbiting, bashing, gossiping, slander. And as a result, if you know the story, their goodbye winds up bringing about good. The gospel goes out to twice as many places. It goes forward and spreads faster. God used the good goodbye, the God be with you for good. In fact, years later... Because of the way they were separated, even after a sharp dispute, here's what Paul would write to Timothy. Paul says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark, speaking of John Mark, get John Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. The same John Mark that Paul couldn't be with before, now he sees as helpful in his ministry. There's another correspondence related to Barnabas where Paul is encouraging the church to support Barnabas. Had John Mark's level of demonstrated responsibility increased to the point that Paul was now granting closer access? Maybe. Had Barnabas come to appreciate Paul's truth-telling? Had Paul come to understand and share Barnabas' grace towards John Mark? I, I don't know. But church, here, here's what I do know. The good goodbye actually turned out good for everyone. And the gospel was spread and the relationships were restored. And so there you have it. The two C's of boundaries, communication and consequences, each done well, proactively and not reactively, given not punitively, but lovingly. Will every relationship be restored? No. You can't make that happen, but as long as it's up to you, as far as it's up to you, you go and live in peace with everyone. And you use good and godly boundaries to bring your crazy-making, chaotic relationships into God's good and pleasing order. Let's stand and close us all.